0: Hello, I'm Peter Moore and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Culligraphy. Peter Moore. Today we're travelling back a century to an English village, a disturbing mystery, and to the age of Sherlock Holmes. Today people remember that infamous French miscarriage of justice, the Dreyfus affair, but the English equivalent, the case of George Dalgy, is not so well known. The stories, though, do have much in common. They share an establishment cover-up, a racial prejudice, a compelling plotline, and a vivid historical context. In the Adalji case, we can add the tantalising fact that the mystery involved Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who launched an heroic investigation into the crime in just the manner of his fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes. A little more than a century after the events, the story was poignantly fictionalised in Julian Barnes's novel Arthur and George. Now the author, Srabani Basu, has returned to the case with an historian's eye. Shrabani Basu is a journalist and Sunday Times best-selling author. Her books include, of course, Victoria and Abdul, The True Story of the Queen's Closest Confidant, which was adapted for the big screen. Her latest book is at the centre of this episode. It's called The Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer, Arthur Conan Doyle, Georgia Dalgy, and The Case of the Foreigner in the English Village. We have a newly released hardback copy of this book to give away to a lucky listener. To enter the draw, all you have to do is like our Facebook page. All details are in the show notes. Otherwise, enjoy. Charbonne Basu, welcome to Travels Through Time. I do have to, before we get going, I'm going to declare an interest. I think this is the best way to say it. I grew up in Staffordshire um, oh. on a farm, well, or behind a farm, you might say. And um, as a young lad, I used to go to all of the places which we're going to be talking about over the course of the next hour, including this little village of Great Worley, where I think I've played cricket once or or twice. Wow, that is
1: fascinating.
0: (laughs) I thought a nice place to start was with uh, two different quotes. Um, They are both by Arthur Conan Doyle, and one is written in his own voice, and this first is written in the voice of Sherlock Holmes. So this is Sherlock Holmes talking in The Adventure of the Copper Beaches. He says, "'It is my belief, Watson, founded upon my experience, that the lowest and vilest alleys of London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside.'" Okay. And the second, so this is is a letter that Conan Doyle wrote in January, 1907 to the Daily Telegraph. Mm -hmm. And he writes, I've been engaged for some time past in investigating the case of Mr. George Edalogy, a young solicitor of Parsi origin, who was condemned at the Stafford Quarter Sessions of October 1903 to seven years penal servitude for the maiming of cattle. I should be much obliged to you if you would aid the cause of justice by publishing the results of my inquiry in an early number of the Daily Telegraph. You would add to the favour, if you would permit the statement to be headed, no copyright, for I hope that in that case, other papers, and especially Midland papers, would copy it in extenso. Only an appeal to the public can put an end to a course of injustice and persecution, which amount, as I hope that I shall show, to a national scandal. Can you tell me what he was talking about, please?
1: Well, this is the whole, (laughs) as I call it, the mystery of the Parsi lawyer. So this is an incident that happens in 1903 in this village of uh, Great Worley. And um, suddenly terror grips this mining village. Somebody is coming at night and slashing horses and cows and just leaving them to die in the fields. It's an absolutely gruesome crime. And the police have no handle on this. This goes on for months, six months. It starts in February 1903, and it's been going on. The villagers are in a panic. The police... Uh, have drafted in extra forces, but they can't do anything. And so, of course, the rumors and the counter rumors all start flying. Everyone is trying to solve this mystery, find what they call the Whirly Ripper. And suspicion falls, of course, on this in the only Indian family in the village. And this is the family of George Edalji. Um, His father is the vicar of Great Whirly. His name is Shapurji he is He arrived from Bombay. He's a convert uh, to Christianity. And he's become the vicar of this white parish. And he is married to a white English woman. Uh, charlotte he has three children uh the eldest is george Adalji, who is uh, the main character in this story and as these horses are being killed suddenly there is a spate of anonymous letters so anonymous letters go to the police they go to george Adalji, and they go to other villagers and somehow they are all pointing to george as the leader of a gang that is doing this the police round up and they just arrest george he's tried and he's imprisoned uh, he's you know found guilty and imprisoned for 7 years but he's let out on parole after 3 years uh, but the crime still hangs on his head and so he doesn't know what to do he can't practice as a solicitor so this which is what he used to do he used to, you know he was a 28 year old solicitor who did nothing led a very boring life went from the vicarage to his office in Birmingham. Had, didn't have too many friends, didn't do anything much. And um, suddenly he's arrested. He's let out, but he can't practice. And he decides to write to Arthur Conan Doyle. And he says that the only person who can help him solve this crime, the person who can clear his name is the man who created Sherlock Holmes. So it needs Sherlock Holmes to solve this mystery. And he writes to Arthur Conan Doyle.
0: It's sometimes remembered, I don't know if this is absolutely accurate, you'll tell me in a moment, but is this, because of course, during the great years of Sherlock Holmes in the early 1900s, there was a tradition that people would write to Sherlock Holmes, believing him to be a real character and Conan Doyle Mm -hmm. would be Mm -hmm. snowballed with fan mail, but the idea that he only really took up one case, and that was this one, I'm not sure if that's accurate, but
1: that is true.
0: Is, yeah, that, is yeah. that
1: right? So- yes, it is. So he would get lots of letters for everything. In fact, everything to him, his own mail, used to be marked to Sherlock Holmes, which made Arthur Conan Doyle really fed up of the character he had created. In fact, when a shirt you know, from the laundry came marked to Sherlock Holmes, he said, this is it, I'm going to kill off Holmes, which he does. He kills him in one of his stories, and he says that's the end of him, throws him off the Reichenbach Falls. But you know, you can't kill Holmes, he has such a following. Mm-hmm. So he has to bring him back. And he brings him back at the same time that all this is happening in Great Worley. Mm-hmm. So Hound of Baskerville is published in 1902. That's the time things are going wrong for George Adalji. And by 1903, it's out, he's in prison, of course, and that's where he reads the Hound of, Bas- of the Baskerville. And um He's fascinated. He's never really read uh, the Conan Doyle before. And so this introduction in prison to this master writer uh, then leads him down another
0: path. But this is a crime with very long roots, which stretch back Mm -hmm. into the Mm -hmm. 1880s, 1890s. You would maybe make an argument even earlier to the 1870s. Really, there's been a nasty, vindictive campaign of harassment against the Adalji family for a long time in Great Worley. Do you want to talk a little bit about that to set that contextual scene?
1: Yep, absolutely. So in 1876, uh, Shapuji Adalji becomes the vicar of Great Worley. And you can imagine there is this brown man with a pronounced Indian accent. He is the first uh, vicar of South Asian origin in, in UK. And he, this brown man is out here to preach to a white parish. You know he's here with his wife his uh, English wife and um, in 1876 George is born so the same year um, George is born and then two more children follow so the village are watching him you know they see the children being baptized um, the family more or less keeps to themselves but the trouble starts in 1888 um, when George is just 12 years old because one day uh, Sharpuji finds that there is graffiti outside uh, his house painted. The indulgies are wicked. And also he receives this ad, you know, uh, a letter saying, subscribe to the Express and Star. He doesn't think much of that. And he thinks, you know, somebody's, a salesman has put this through. But then this same letter, subscribe, or I'm going to shoot you in the head, starts coming. And he realizes this is pretty grim. And slowly... There is suddenly a lot of hate mail pouring through um, the vicarage and hoaxes, and this goes on. So, f- you know, first uh, the police suspect that it's uh, the maid who works in their house, she's arrested, but then she's let go because she's quite young, she's just about 17. And somehow the police at this time keep thinking that it is George. George was only 12 when the letters started, but they keep thinking it's this boy who's done it. He's written these letters, because many of them were written in a sort of childish hand. Um, And they think that this is this boy. Um, He's uh, sort of, um, you know, he's got bulging eyes because he was very myopic. Uh, So they find him an odd looking boy, dark skinned, odd looking boy. And they think he's the one Uh, writing letters uh, to himself. Now, why, you know, (laughs) it completely defies logic. Why would he harass his father? Because then there are hoaxes, you know, delivery men start appearing at the vicarage saying, you ordered all this cement and they would upload it. And the poor vicar would say, no, I didn't. Then, you know, builders would arrive. You've got a roof to mend. Um, Or worse, they would, you know, call out for doctors. Uh, Mrs. Adalji is very ill and doctors would come rushing and find Mrs. Adalji fine. <laughs> you know, Nothing had happened to her. So it was very embarrassing for the vicar. And he actually puts out, a, 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 he goes to the local press and he puts out a newspaper, uh, an article saying, you know, anybody sending me things, please, you know, check whether I've ordered them because somebody's playing tricks on, on me. And so it's all very puzzling, but it goes on from 1888. This goes on by eight. 18- 1892 uh, between 1892 and 1895 this is still victorian britain and george is now 17 years old this spate of letters becomes more violent they are now abusive they now say we're going to kill george and you know they they're, i've seen these letters in the archives and you know just think uh, you know these letters being directed at you your wife your uh, son who's barely a teenager and uh, saying he's going to be in his grave, uh, you know. And there is this Sergeant Upton and he's convinced that it is George. He reports to his chief, who is uh, who plays a prominent part in this whole thing, is Chief Constable of uh, Staffordshire Police. And his name is Captain Anson. He writes to him and he says, I'm sure it's George. It's this boy. And when it's proved, you know, he should be punished. So even before an animal has been slashed and all these crimes happen, there is a background of tension, race hate in this village.
0: I think the the looking at the letters, they're very disturbing. The content Mm -hmm. of them is Mm -hmm. um, so unsettling that you wonder how they continued living. But because, of course, this was the age of Galton and eugenics. It's a generation after Darwin. But at the same time, some quite interesting things are happening within society, and you 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 write about this. So, for example, we had the first three South Asian MPs in the eighteen nineties, which was a surprising fact to me that they were all Parsees. And um, just round the corner from me, actually, there's a blue plaque on one of the buildings, and it says Gandhi was a law student here in the eighteen nineties. So we know there's a long uh, history of Britain being a multiracial country and society, but it seems that in the 1890s, there's a sense of people who are from different places um, coming into positions of power. And it's a very strange place, Great Worley, to find um, a, a parson who is a Parsi. It's just yeah, it, it is yeah. it is bizarre in a way, isn't it? So could you talk it a little about that?
1: Yep. And so in 1892, the first Indian MP in the House of Commons is a Parsi, Dada Bhai Naoroji. Now, of course, he he had con- contested earlier. And at that time, the then Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, had declared uh, that, oh, England is not ready to vote in a black man yet. And this black man speech, you know, in today's terms, we would say it went viral. <laughs> but this yeah. is what happened. There were, there were, you know, sort of cartoon depictions of... Um, uh, Salisbury saying Britain is not ready for a black man. And then when he wins in 1892, a few years later, um, these cartoons come up again. and punch portrays uh, you know (laughs) the other by Naroji in his long parsi robes yes so there is a parsi um, first time elected in in parliament but it is interesting i found it really interesting that shapurji never appealed to him and i couldn't figure out why this happened because you know you think you'd you'd write to an mp if he was there and you're especially you're a parsi Uh, but what had happened is shapurji had was a convert he was a christian and he had left behind his Parsi faith. So I I feel he didn't want to go back and ask the Parsis for help because he saw them as people he had left behind when he left India. He had left his family, he'd left his faith and he'd converted to Christianity.
0: Could you explain what a Parsi is? just for, yes, um, for clarity?
1: It's only the Indian, Indian Zoroastrians who are called Parsis. They were called Parsis because they'd come from Persia. And uh, they settled in Bombay. They settled in Karachi. Uh, they were very enterprising. So you see them in business. They profited from the opium trade. Uh, they were also very westernized. And so this was a community that the missionaries were targeting. Um, and of course, Parsis are known to worship the the sun, you know, they're sun worshippers, so if you, you know, so they worship nature, which is such a beautiful thing, Uh, but, you know, when it's twisted like that, that, you know, this is what he is doing, this is why he goes out in the dark, the poor man just goes for a walk, but it becomes translated into prowling in the dark, so, you know, a little fact just sort of flies away in these rumours
0: so we'd best get into it and I'm Mm gonna ask you now I will give you the opportunity I should say of um, Mm -hmm. a little bit of time travel so Mm -hmm. um, we always say to people who come on this podcast if you could pick just one year in the past which year would Mm -hmm. you like to go back to so in this story which which year have you picked
1: I'm I'm going to go with 1907 because that's when Arthur Conan Doyle comes into the picture
0: right well Oh, early 20th century. Do you want to just give us a very quick flavour of, I mean, you've written about this period before when um, you wrote about Victorian Abdul. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, this time, could Mm -hmm. you, before we get into the the detail, 1907, what's going on in Britain? What's, what are the, you know, kind of big themes and obsessions Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it's the it's the Edwardian era. The whole Victorian era is over. She died in 1901, ended that period. That was the height of empire. That was when Britain ruled the seas, ruled everything. But since then we had a little downfall. We had the Boer. Well, we had the Boer Wars, which were a victory, but they were hard fought and they had to be justified and they were not popular. And now Edward has uh, has come on the throne and we have the trains. We still have the old fashioned trams, but things are changing. So the industrial era is progressing further. But also the racism in the society is also increasing. We see this uh, as soon as Victoria. I mean, I'm going to go back to uh, my old book, Victoria and Abdul, because when Victoria dies in 1901, she was very close to this man, Abdul Karim, who served in her court, and the first thing that her successor, Aaron's successor, Bertie, who becomes Edward Seventh, does is to burn all the letters Victoria wrote to Abdul. So a bonfire is made, and he just wants to erase Abdul from history. So he comes down heavily on Abdul, he comes down heavily on all the Indians that are employed in this royal palace, because Victoria loved them. There's there's unrest in other parts of the empire. So things are, there's a sort of churn as we enter, uh, you know, the beginning of the 20th century. So, and uh, this is yeah. exactly where trouble starts in George's life.
0: Brilliant. So that's a, where are we going to go for your first scene then? where would you like to go?
1: So 1907, I'm going to start with Arthur Conan Doyle. He has accepted, George has written to him, uh, as we've said before, he's written to him to take up this case and he's accepted, he's met George, but now he's got to, you know, he's put on his Sherlock Holmes hat and he's got to investigate this. So he he needs to go to the scene of crime. (laughs) So early morning, he catches the train from London and he goes to Great Worley. He changes trains in Birmingham, catches the branch line, gets off at Great Burley, and uh, walks to the vicarage where he is met by Shapurji and his wife and their daughter Maud. Um, He joins them for breakfast. And as he sits at the table, he he writes later that it was this family that really convinced him that, you know, George was innocent. Because here was this careworn vicar, you know, really anxious and tired. And there is this, um, you know, his wife, Charlotte, with her gray, he describes with her gray hair and her blue eyes, and uh, also very troubled. And this young, their daughter, young daughter, Maud, who should have been supported by the police, by this, you know, by the authorities, but instead targeted by them, targeted by bullies, as he writes. And he listens to their story. He hears about all the things that have happened in the past, all the letters. So Arthur Conan Doyle now wants to walk to the fields. So he crosses this line, he climbs up the tracks, he crosses the tracks, he climbs over gorse bushes, crosses the fields. And again, he realizes that George, with his myopia, would never have been able to cross this path on a wild and stormy night. He feels the soil and he says this is uh, sandy soil. But what they found on George's shoe was uh, clay soil. So he's got all these, you know, little notes that he's made. And then, of course, he has to go to the to the village itself. So he goes and he talks to the locals. He talks to the villagers. He talks to a grocer who had received hate mail himself. Uh, and he talks to another person called William William Gratorex, who had also received mails and who had also, you know, letters were sent in the name of his son, uh, Wilfred Greatorex. So he's, um, he's sort of putting or connecting the dots and saying, what would George have to do with these people? Why were letters sent to them? Why was George named in letters to them? So this whole puzzle is, uh, you know, he's trying to get his head around this.
0: At the moment, at this point in uh, 1907, Arthur Conan Doyle must be one of the most famous people in Britain. Mm -hmm. So the Mm -hmm. idea of him turning up in your village is going to cause such a (laughs) flutter of excitement. And Mm -hmm. is that reflected in the source material?
1: Oh, absolutely. So they all talk to him. They're very flattered that, uh, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle has come to the village. Um, He even writes to uh, Anson, the the chief constable I spoke about earlier, and he wants to meet him. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle goes to visit Anson. So this is all happening on the same day. And he, uh, this is his last stop. And uh, initially when he writes to him talking about Sherlock Holmes, uh, Anson is really flattered that, you know, the great Arthur Conan Doyle has written to him. And he says, he would love to hear what Sherlock Holmes would have thought of this um, of this um, crime. And uh, of course it, it doesn't go well for the relation between Anson and Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, Conan Doyle quickly realizes that Anson is prejudiced. He's allowed all his prejudice to come in this picture. He he goes back and he writes. He writes his articles in the Daily Telegraph in a few days. And he says that the whole investigation was handled badly. He pulls out all the faults in the, in the trial. And he literally just uh, picks faults with everything and and. Puts it before his readers and says, This man is innocent.
0: I, I was just going to go back to Anson. That, that mm-hmm. Shirl- well, I keep calling him Sherlock. That mm-hmm. um, Conan Doyle um, realizes so quickly that he is prejudiced in this criminal case is revealing itself because I think having read Conan Doyle's fiction, you realize mm-hmm. that he's not a man who's at the liberal end of the spectrum he's a unionist right. at one at one point yes. there's a lot of stereo, stereotypes and tropes i remember reading the lost mm-hmm. world one of his mm-hmm. which has some kind of frankly racist descriptions today we'd describe him as of
1: course then, so, uh, i mean that is the irony of this whole thing because
0: but if anson is beyond him to this point <laughs> of of obviousness you see it must um I suppose well, it's just a it's an insight into that meeting between the two of them because he knows from the moment mm-hmm. he sees him, doesn't he?- mm-hmm.
1: you know the irony he's doing it for empire because you know this is what we do, we good men of mm-hmm. empire we 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 seek justice. Um, hence, uh, he's doing this um, that's a, for that's George. such an
0: interesting point. So you're, you're you're saying that a central tenet of civilization in the British mind at this point is the is the legal system and the yeah, um, yeah. I, democracy I, as well. Yeah, exactly. And uh-huh. I think just for some nuance as well, um, I was interested to see because rather than splitting this into a kind of binary and saying that the people over here were racially prejudiced, there was. Still a petition of 10,000 people that demanded justice for George, including MPs and members of the establishment. So when you're trying to work mm-hmm. out what their motivation is, I think it's probably fair as well to say that they have a real belief, faith in the law. British law has to be seen to be served and... Yes,
1: absolutely. I mean, there are lawyers, members of the legal profession who signed this petition. Uh, there are doctors, uh, there are there are Gujaratis, you know, Indians, uh, Gujarati yeah. is the language that Parsi speak, So there are many of them. And then they later they contribute to a fund for ideology. In this case, we're talking about this village yeah. and um, possibly, you know, this prejudice in this village. So this is a mining village, so there's a, there's two sections of population here. So there is there are the working class, they are the miners, the agricultural laborers, and so it's essentially working class. Um, literacy rates are low, uh, deaths are high, mining accidents, babies dying young, and on the other hand, you also have the landowners because you know they own the mines, they own uh, they own the far agricultural land, and um, Sharpurji is falling between both these categories and he is you know he hasn't got his supporters in of course the landed don't like him and uh, well you know the working class are just so busy getting on with their lives
0: yeah well, i just love that picture of uh, arthur conan doyle browsing through the hedgerows it's quite an interesting one okay we're gonna have to keep going the next scene mm-hmm. where would you like to go uh, next we'll leave a great whirly wonderful name though it is behind and we'll go <laughs> forwards
1: Right, so the next scene we'll take is April 1907 and I, I've chosen April because it's after um, Arthur Conan Doyle has published his uh, uh, pieces in the Daily Telegraph and it, they have forced, they've caused a sensation, they have forced the Home Office to set up a committee. A committee is set up and uh, it's a three-man committee and they published their report in April. But, of course, the, the committee, you know, the establishment, they, they stand together. And the chair of the committee is Sir Albert de Rutzen, and he is a cousin of Anson, <laughs> Uh-huh. So, somebody, one of Conan Doyle's friends comment that the white face of Anson has to be preserved much more than the brown face of George Dalgy. So, you know, even this committee is not going to go that well. So, what happens? In April, uh, the committee publishes its report. And what do they say? They actually give George Dalgy. Um, a free pardon. So victory for Arthur Conan Doyle, big victory. Um, he is now, you know, no longer accused of this crime. Uh, in fact, they say that um, uh, there was uh, the jury, they, they followed the jury and they say the jury didn't make the correct decision. Uh, they fault the police, which makes Anson really angry. And um, they, so they sort of say that, yes, they criticize Staffordshire police, but there is a sting in the tail. They say that George is not going to be compensated uh, because he was the author of the letters. So, this causes you know, this makes Arthur Conan Doyle explode in fury. He says, This is absolutely ridiculous because either a man is guilty, and if he's guilty, he should be punished. But if he's not guilty, and you give him a free pardon, and you say you made a mistake, well, three years in prison, where's the compensation? so he demands compensation and uh, what about George? George says that this is you know he says he's very happy that they've given him the free pardon but this is this is completely unjust. He should get compensation and he declares that I'm going to fight for compensation till I get it. I deserve my compensation. So the battle is on and uh, what is Conan Doyle going to do now?
0: Well that's interesting but there's a few things I just wanted to um Mm -hmm. to check with you and you can maybe Um, expand on this is that at this point in British history, what is the recourse um, to someone who's been falsely imprisoned, or if there's been a miscarriage of justice, there doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to be a court of appeals at this point. So you have to go to the home secretary. Is
1: that right? You have to petition. That's all you can do. So there is no court, there is no legal recourse after this. Once you're guilty, you're guilty. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle has written this piece in the Telegraph. If more than the petitions, it's the, it's the piece in the Telegraph that finally makes them set up this home the committee. Mm. But of course, the committee then says that no compensation for George. Mm. So up till now, Arthur Conan Doyle in his articles has just taken the you know he's he's discussed the case he's he said he is his job is to prove that George isn't guilty that George is innocent yeah Uh, he is not exploring who is the real killer now when the home office don't give him compensation he says I'm going to now take this a step further I have a good enough idea and I'm going to tell them who is the killer So now the second stage of his investigation and the real investigation actually begins. So this is where we come in. He now again writes uh, three pieces in the Daily Telegraph. The Daily Telegraph has become the forum for Arthur Conan Doyle now. And he says, who wrote these letters? It's very important to find out who wrote the letters. And he publishes three articles and he, he picks up, he says, so let's untangle this and see uh, who and why would these letters be written? And he picks these letters, he, he publishes uh, copies in the, in the paper so people can compare uh, George's handwriting and the, and the anonymous letters. And he says, you know, the readers can see that they, one looks like George's handwriting is that of an adult and this other one is like an illiterate scribble. Then he says, also, what is the motive? Why is this young schoolboy, Wilfred Greater X, younger than George, getting these letters? You know, why would he be writing letters in his name? What is the connection? And then he starts investigating. I won't go too much into all the detail because it's there in the book, but <laughs> he publishes all, you know, I don't want to give the whole story No, away. no, don't. Keep but it. he goes on this trail and then he publishes the second set of letters, which came, you know, which arrived at the house Um, in the 80s 1880s and he says these letters these were written by clearly written by a family uh, this members of the same family so he is not naming the person but villagers are quickly working out who Arthur Conan Doyle is referring to so when he writes his pieces in the the telegraph he compares this case to the uh, to the Dreyfus affair in France yeah And he says that case happened to this man, Alfred Dreyfus, who was accused of selling secrets, uh, naval secrets. And he said that um, he was targeted because he was a Jew and uh, George Hidalgo is targeted because he's a Parsi. Yeah. So he says, this is the you know, this is England's Dreyfus affair. Yeah. And uh, he and then, takes on the role of Emile Zola. You know, yeah. this is his
0: refuse. But That's another sort of kind of similarity, isn't it? Because again, it's the use of journalism, the newspapers as a way mm-hmm. of generating public support behind a popular cause, behind a cause mm-hmm. celebre. And he mm-hmm. pretty much does what Zola does with that famous jacuzzi. Yeah. It's it's there in the Daily Telegraph, and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I suppose Anson, in this case, is the villain. Oh,
1: Totally, totally. And then what is even more interesting is, you know, the the clash with which I talk about in the book is uh, because I found lots of new material while I was researching. And they are the letters between Anson and Conan Doyle. And goodness, they are a treasure (laughs) trove. They are hammer and tongs at each other, so much so that Anson is laying false trails to confuse and trip up conan doyle he's leading him down different routes and conan doyle is you know and he watches as he walks down a wrong path so it's uh it's entertaining as well as being quite shocking
0: Can't <laughs> so imagine that, that's that, that, ever that... happened before but anyway <entertaining>. Hello, it's Peter here. As ever we like to give you some visual imagery to go along with the spoken descriptions in the episode. So today we're going to include a colourised image of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle made from a photograph taken at about the time of the Adalgi case on our website. It's of course made by Jordan Lloyd of Colourgraph. It's been a really busy and very exciting time for our friends at Colourgraph recently. They've massively increased the number of colourised images that are available to purchase on their website, which is Colourgraph.co. There are now Literally hundreds of landscapes, cityscapes, architectural views, Americana and portraits that have been made for organizations like the National Geographic, the Times, the BBC and the Imperial War Museum. From the D-Day beaches to the Flatiron buildings in New York City to the blossoming cherry trees in Washington, D.C. in 1925. There really is something for everyone. Until now, it's been pretty hard to purchase such compelling works of art for yourself. But changing changingness. Their prints are high-quality visual history, expertly researched and beautifully produced. They make such unusual and delightful presents too, and we're really happy to recommend them to all of our listeners. To see what I mean, you really have to visit their site. It's (laughs) Colograph.co Oh. Scene three, let's go to your third scene. And where, where, right. do, where does this lead us to?
1: So the third scene is, as we said, uh, Conan Doyle is, uh, this is it, September 1907. And Arthur Conan Doyle is on his honeymoon. <laughs> he has married Jean Leckie. He's taking her on a European tour. Uh, but guess what is following him <laughs> all mm. along on this Great with, uh, Yes, <laughs> it's the George Adalji case. So because he's left instructions that all letters that come to his house must be redirected. There's the Dresden. There's a letter from there. And then it goes on from Dresden. They move to Venice, uh, check into this beautiful hotel in Venice, you know, luxurious former palace. I think it was called the Royal Hotel Daniele on the canal. Gorgeous views. But uh, just when Jean is thinking, oh, yes, you know, we are in Venice, you know, under the <laughs> Venetian stars, and this is so romantic. Oh, no, there's <laughs> another letter. But this letter gets uh, Conan Doyle so excited because it is from California. It is uh, from uh, Long Beach, California. What happens is at some time while he's investigating, George Adalji gets another uh, pile of mail and one of them is... An advertisement, it's come from California. It's an advertisement for an article that George has written. And on the side of this ad, a person has scribbled lots of, uh, uh, you know, crazy, crazy things and sent it to him. So, uh, and he's given the address as the Ark. Now, Conan Doyle, who's following this family that I talked about, and he said it's definitely this family, it's called the Sharp, they're the Sharp family of Great Whirly. And he thinks that one of those brothers, is the man who has now gone to California and is writing this mail, and he thinks he's tracked him. It took him five months, and he thinks he's made this breakthrough. He's so he is thrilled. He gets this letter. Out goes jeans. You know, plans for a lovely romantic dinner because he's <laughs> writing to the home office immediately, saying here is final proof that I have solved the case. And after five months, I have traced Frank Sharp, and he he lives. Um, in this house, in this uh, lodging house called the Ark in, in California.
0: There's lots of imagination in this story and lots of things to speculate. Were you in that room with the two of them as a kind of shadowy, ghosty figure in the corner? Um, it'd be quite a fun scene to watch over this one, wouldn't it? You've got the dynamics of the honeymoon <laughs> yes. at long last. Yes. But what what, like, kind of gives a sense of Conan Doyle's personality? Was he like just an intense... Mm-hmm romantic who could get carried away with things. So I mean, romantic and yes. not the kind of callow modern yeah, use yeah, of the yeah, word, yeah. but in the old, in the old, the fashioned. old
1: fashioned. Oh, yes. He's the old yeah. fashioned romantic. He wanted to abandon his Sherlock Holmes books because he wanted to write historic romances. That's what he wanted to do. Mm. He did write a few and, you know, they, they weren't, you know, they weren't as popular as his Conan Doyles. In fact, I don't think they were popular at all. And in fact, when they get married, uh, George is invited to the wedding. So you can imagine this this awkward man is standing there uh, watching the likes of, you know, Bram Stoker, uh, other authors, biggest publishers, the editor of Strand, all at this reception. The champagne is flowing. uh, And uh, later Arthur Conan Doyle writes that um, uh, George had come to his reception and he was um, proudest. He was the guest he was proudest of. So that was sweet. It just showed that, wow. you know, there was a real bond between them. And
0: the older yeah, man
1: really so. cared for George. Otherwise, why would, you know, he could be just doing the case. He need not have called him for the wedding. Well, that's really special. Listen,
0: I, this is kind of one of the last question, mm-hmm. I think, of this mm-hmm. scene that I wanted to um, put to you, which is. Um, we've talked a lot about Arthur Conan Doyle but I wanted to ask you who do you think is the hero of this book if we can reduce it to those terms because we haven't talked much about George but there's a as I was reading I I, you know you kind of side with him because he's such an awkward Mm -hmm. like lad who's who's caught in this situation which I mean we read much more about experiences of racism Mm -hmm. today Mm -hmm. in in our media of people like kind of having um, you know, kind of prejudice against them and their household, all the rest of this. But this is so long ago and you could you can kind of get a sense that George is um, he's he's so attacked, so unfairly, so nastily, but he just wants to live this quiet life. He keeps his head down. He goes to work on the train. He comes home. He goes for walks on his own. And I thought there was something very steadfast and actually quite like quietly heroic about him. Would you agree? with that? I
1: do. I do. So initially, I felt really sorry for George, you know, this awkward boy when he's young and he's facing this and thinking that he has no mates in school. He must be bullied because of the way he looks, his color, everything. Um, And then slowly there is, as you know, the book goes on and you see George replying, you see George taking on this case. He's he's not a pushover. And yeah. I do like that about him, fiber. that he fights, he does go on fighting. He is very boring, he doesn't have a you know big voice, he doesn't have the drama and the style of Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, but he's a quiet fighter, he keeps at it, um, You know, almost a plodder, but you have to say that he doesn't give up. So.
0: But sometimes it's those, as we look back in the long view, it's sometimes those personality traits which create history in a way aren't Mm -hmm. they because he could have acted in a very different manner Mm -hmm. during this whole story Yeah. yeah And it would have been a different story. Mm-hmm. It, would have, it would have been, yeah. I don't yeah.
1: know. It what would have happened if different. he hadn't written to Arthur Conan Doyle? What would have happened if Arthur yeah. Conan Doyle hadn't accepted? Uh, but of course, Arthur Conan Doyle too is a, is our hero in this story. I think they're both our heroes together because if he hadn't mm. backed George and taken his case up, uh, George would never have been allowed to practice. He would probably have left law. Goodness knows what he would have done. He couldn't return to Great Worley because he feared mm. that if he went there, He went back and another, you know, any cattle was killed, he would be targeted again. Um, So he never returned to Great he 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 really lost his home. He had to live in London, which he didn't really like that much. Uh, He was used to the quiet country life. So he is, he never marries. We don't know why. Maybe this case just hung on his head so much. Who would marry him? Mm. If you know, he never, he wasn't somebody who was sociable. He probably never met anybody. Uh, so then he ends up, you know, with it, living his last few day, years of his life with his sister who looks after him.
0: So he's got yeah. a tragedy. I should point uh, out, actually. Yeah. I just wanted to point out at the moment that people who are familiar already with this story probably will be so through Julian Barnes' mm-hmm. book, Arthur and George, mm-hmm. which is a fictional mm-hmm. telling of this, mm-hmm. although very like faithful to the facts yeah, as yeah. well. And I just wanted to make the point that, you you of course write about this early on and the fact that you have found quite a lot of supplementary new material mm-hmm. which is very exciting yes. which mm-hmm. allows you to turn a novel into a fully fleshed out non-fiction book fully you know, kind of um, living history right, which right. is yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to say something quickly about that.
1: Yeah, I wanted to write about George ages ago, years ago, even before Victor- I wrote Victorian Abdul. But then when Julian Barnes wrote the book, I said, well, you know, it's been done by this famous novelist. What am I going to do? So I left it. I sort of parked that idea. And it was in 2015 that I discovered that some material, some letters were going to be auctioned. And they were letters between Conan Doyle and Anson. And that really triggered me. I said, it's a sign. There's got to be new material there. I've got to follow this and find out. And so that's what started me. So in 2015, I followed those letters. They were auctioned and I said, oh, my God, don't let them go to a private, you know, somebody's hands in private. And I never see them again. But they were bought by Portsmouth, uh, Portsmouth Council, Portsmouth Library has them. And I could make an appointment to go see all the boxes And that's where the story of Conan Doyle versus Anson, these false trails, there is so much explosive material there. You know, it was amazing. So, yeah, I really enjoyed. I was on the trail as well. You know, if Conan (laughs) Doyle was on that trail, then I was on Conan Doyle's trail. And uh, yeah, it was all a lot of fun.
0: uh, researching it's it. such vibrant history this this i mean it's the great age of letter writing mm-hmm. and people have wonderful prose styles back then so it's all stylistically brilliant but the setting as well is yeah. is so interesting and you manage to bring a new perspective as well mm-hmm. of, of race and empire and you know you're left with so much to wonder and ponder but anyway i want to this really is my last question i should say we always say uh to people when we finish our little journey through the past if you could bring one object back mm-hmm. as a memento from the time what would you have from 1907 in this case?
1: Um, well, it's probably, it is 1907, but it's probably earlier. It's when the trial happens, 1903, when the arrest happens. It's uh, uh, George Dalgie's coat that is produced as evidence. Oh. And this coat, when it leaves the vicarage, is just damp because obviously he's been wearing it. Uh, and it had been an evening, which was a sort of wet evening. But um, when it did, the police say there are horse hairs on it. And the vicar looks at it and said, it's not a horsehair. Then he goes to the window and he says, there's no horsehair. There's, it's a thread. You know, the police keep saying it's a horsehair. Anyway, court is uh, taken away to the police station. And then by the time of the trial, this court comes and the doctor declares that there are 29 horsehairs on it. <laughs> so where Same. did these mysterious horsehairs come from? Um, and uh, this is produced as evidence that, you know, convicts... Um, for Georgia Adalji so I'd love to see that coat with the horses yeah well maybe
0: it'd be a good thing to to wear to the book launch wouldn't it maybe maybe, <laughs> really maybe
1: nobody'd of- want to come near me but <laughs> keep it as, you know.
0: <laughs> if we're if we're allowed book launches if we're allowed. who knows um well listen this has been um loads of fun and uh I think I've learnt quite a bit talking to you even you've talked me a bit about Staffordshire which is nice as well so good luck with the book it's really really worthwhile I think the the sense of you on the trail is abundant throughout and it really rips along so it's a great it's a great pacey read as well congratulations and thank you thank
1: you thank you for inviting me it's been lovely to chat (laughs) thank you
0: that was me, Peter Moore, talking to Shrabani Basu about her engrossing new book, The Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer, Arthur Conan Doyle, Georgia Dalgy and the Case of the Foreigner in the English Village. It's recently published in hardback by Bloomsbury. As I said at the start of this episode, we have a newly released hardback copy of the book to give away to a lucky listener. To enter the draw, all you have to do is like our Facebook page. All details in the show notes. As ever, there's so much more, including a colourised image of a very cheerful Arthur Conan Doyle on our website, tttpodcast.com. I'm going to be back next week with the brilliant novelist Simon Scarrow, but from me for now, that's it. Thank you very much for listening.